Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled The Prosecution of Pep Guardiola. With Manchester City's two-year ban from football and £25 million fine from UEFA for breaching the financial fair play legislation, for me this has been a long time coming. I've always felt that the money that has been put in by state entities into Paris Saint-Germain and into Man City was, was fundamentally corrupting. It was always going to lead to you know, financial doping. There was going to be sports washing and the inevitable results were going to be, broadly speaking, negative. The question of Manchester City's European ban is really a political one. Do you want a political settlement that, in terms of football that is predicated on the free market with laissez-faire, light-touch regulation? So for this iteration, Manchester City and PSG's, Paris Saint-Germain's owners, would be free to spend as they wish and would unequivocally outline to the have-nots the costs required to compete at the highest level. So effectively, if you want to be a team at the top level of the Champions League, you would need a 50,000-seat stadium, you would need a world-class youth facility, you would need a great manager, you would need a fan base that fills out that stadium, and you would need a wage bill of, let's say, 250 million euros, that is the price of entry to the top level. That is quarterfinals and above of European football. You would need a turnover of, you know, three to 400 million euros to be able to do that. And if you have that money, you can, you know, and you have the capital, the liquidity and the capital to buy a team and put that money in, then have at it. This would accept, you know, huge amounts of debt and bankruptcies as a failure of personal responsibility by the owner, rather than a systemic one. In other words, if you've spent a huge amount of money and you run out of money and your club isn't big enough or isn't run well enough, that's on you. That's not the system. That's on your personal failing as an owner. Effectively, the strapline would be your investment can go up or down. And there's no real safety net. And it is boom or bust. There is an honesty to this. In that it's accepting that historically football ownership has been a combination of marketing, boosterism and prestige. You know, you think of someone like Jack Walker, who just had local pride, wanted to see Blackburn Rovers win the title before he died and was happy to put the money in. In other words, Blackburn Rovers would not have been anywhere near the top of the Premier League but for Jack Walker. You know, you have the prestige of Silvio Berlusconi owning AC Milan and the success that he had with them winning the European Cup, with them winning the Champions League, with them being on the dominant teams in Europe, had a benefit to his media interests and it had some personal benefits to his political career. And that there's an element of marketing into it, in the sense that Roman Abramovich was able to market himself as the owner of Chelsea FC, as opposed to being a, to being just simply a Russian oligarch that's just come into London with new money. <laughs> and it draws on the concept that success in football 
is broadly predicated on size and financial outlay. In other words, historically, the big teams in European football have been Barcelona and Real Madrid in Spain. What were the two largest cities in Spain? Barcelona and Madrid. Where have the teams, successful teams in Italy come from? You know, Juventus in Turin, AC and Inter in Milan, and to a much lesser extent, Lazio and Roma based in Rome. And in England, you've had you know various London clubs that have had success, Arsenal, Chelsea, and again to a lesser extent, Spurs. And your major clubs that have been successful have been Liverpool and teams based in Manchester, where you can have huge crowds, where you can have large stadiums, and a fan base that will allow you and the interest that would mean that you're likely to have an owner with you know, substantial pockets. However, at heart, there lies fun, you know, fundamental dichotomies. Surely this school of thought would be amenable to the concept of financial fair play initiatives that would serve as a means to clamp down on wages and transfer fees. So in other words, if you're saying that the big clubs, traditional large football clubs, would then have an ability, instead of competing against each other, at which point the only way that you can really get better as a football team is to spend more money on your first team, spend more money on your youth system, spend more money on your stadium. In other words, it's spend to grow. And the more that your neighbour spends, the more that you would then have to spend, which eventually cuts into your profit margin and just simply really leads to a bull market and the situation that in the end everybody would lose. You know, it would add a tariff to any new competition speak, seeking to spend their way to the top. A system that has baked in advantages in that turnover is the key to future expenditure. It would thus give the elite a huge head start. If you've already got a 300 million euro turnover then your spending will be, therefore, much higher than if your the club down the road has a turnover of €100 million. Euros. Turnover in football is something that you can't really push particularly quickly. It takes years of sustained success. That would then mean that your revenues in terms of ticket prices, in terms of sponsorship, would then go up. It's not something that you can financially dope in 18 months as such. So where this school of thought breaks down is in the definitions of the haves and the have-nots. Are Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain haves or have-nots? If you're assuming that they are haves, then the financial fair play regulations would be a minor short-term inconvenience and a long-term benefit. In the short term, it means you can't spend as much money as you want to. It means that your process from progress for Paris Saint-Germain from just being dominant in France to being dominant in European competitions would take a little bit longer. With Man City, you would really, if you're limiting the amount of money they were able to spend, you'd likely be closer to Spurs. You'd be likely closer to being a top four team rather than you know winning the league and competing in Europe and getting to the quarterfinals, semi-finals of the Champions League. But the advantage is that instead of spending the money and Often when you spend that money at the beginning, for example, if you look at the players that Man City were signing, you had Adebayor, Gail Clichy, those signings didn't really work in the medium to long term. In the short term, they pushed Man City a bit further up the tunnel, you know, into the top four. But broadly speaking, it took several years. 
And so you would have saved some money in and spent more on the infrastructure, the youth team, which would then have benefits in the medium and long term. And really, once you then you know up the table, once your revenues were growing, you'd then be able to spend more. And what the advantage with financial fair play would be that you shut the door behind you. So in other words, once you were in the European elite, in effect, you know, top 20 biggest clubs in world football, it's that much more difficult for everybody else to get there because you'll be able to you know, maintain the Champions League year after year after year, which is a stable revenue base, and therefore everybody else has to spend within their means. You know, when we think of the, the people who are criticising um, FFP, you know, some Man City fans and other people, if they were so onerous, they would have acted as a drag on their domestic success and their ability to attract the best players and managers. But if we take PSG and Man City, that isn't the case. PSG were dominant in France. They were able to get Ibrahimovic. They were able to get Neymar, you know, Kylian Mbappe. They were able to get the best players. They were able to get the managers they were looking for, who were high profile, who were successful. Same thing for Man City. They won the league, they won the FA Cup, they won the League Cup, they overtook Man Manchester United. There was nothing there that said that that, that had really stopped them. Maybe made them spend a little bit less, but they were still clearly in the, not just the top 20, they were now top 10 European clubs. And in terms of Europe, both were closer than it was too far to success. Man City have got to the semi-finals. They were one goal away from the final. With PSG, they'd beaten Barcelona, they'd beaten Chelsea, they'd got to quarter-finals. They'd had some collapses, but broadly speaking, they had enough talent to get to the quarter-finals, the semi-finals and the finals. And, they were, and they're currently on the path towards you know, breaking that glass ceiling. So if we assume that they were have-nots, that's equally problematic. Both were large clubs with devoted fan base, a history littered with trophies, based in major European cities within the big five European leagues. Arguably, the adherence of the free marketers had been to use Man City and PSG success as the reason to abandon fair play legislation as it prevents new ownership groups, most notably Aston Villa, to be able to spend untrammeled amounts of money to compete with the likes of City. If we were to take the, the free market's arguments to their logical conclusion, then the most profitable most profitable steps would be a European Super League. It would maximise the television revenue and removing restrictions you know, restrictions such as games being played in set huge, such as games being played in set home stadiums, in favour of games played all over the world. So effectively, if you were going to maximise revenue, you'd get the biggest twenty clubs. You'd put them into a European Super League. You'd cut out all of the games that don't make you huge amounts of money. So that's uh, League Cup ties away at Carlisle. It's FA Cup games where the you have to put the tickets down to £10. It's having you know, games played at, t in, you know, at times that half the world are going to be in bed. 
So if you have a, a European Super League, you can play most of your games, let's say if you're Man City, most of your games in Manchester, but you can play some games in China, you can play some games in Japan, at which point you can have larger stadiums, you can have huge ticket prices, you can have you know, fans and all the revenue that you that is minimised to an extent by being held to a home domestic league would be got done. You wouldn't have any Bournemouth, you wouldn't have anyone that would effectively drag on your revenue. You would only have the big teams which have support worldwide. You'd be able to have bigger brand revenue, bigger sponsorships. But really what the free marketers work on, what's their sort of raison d'etre, is the idea that all of the have owners are working to the same ends. That all of them want to basically have the glory and have the revenue and be vaguely profitable. So if you're going to use that model, what that would then state is that the Paris Saint-Germain and Man City owners were overspending as a short-term measure. So they were just trying to reach the status of being a have, and that once they're safely ensconced there, they would level, level off their spending in the manner of an Abramovich, you know, who was you know, one of the original shoe spenders. Someone that came in and said, I'm going to turn Chelsea from a top-four team in England, who occasionally qualify for the Champions League, into a European behemoth. And did. And once they were established, once they were, you know, winning the league and once they were competing for the league and they were able to get to the last stages of the Champions League, their expenditure sort of levelled off. It wasn't quite as high. In other words, you then started spending money on youth system. The idea being is that Chelsea were going to, you know, be far more self-sufficient, weren't going to be as reliant on Abramovich's money because eventually Abramovich is simply one person. With a set amount of money, although he's a billionaire, it's not going to. He can't spend three hundred million every single year. So for him, fair play legislation was great. It closed the door on all the other teams trying to compete, because Chelsea, by dint of their success over his, you know, spell as owner, had risen to the point where their revenues were high, consistent due to the European football and success. But that is the fundamental difference between having a private or a corporate owner and that of a state entity. The state entity, there is no need for profitability, as even the most optimistic profit forecast on a presumptive European Super League would just be a drop in the ocean. If you make, if you know, Paris Saint-Germain were to make £200 million profit, what difference does that make when you're a state? whose revenues are billions, trillions. 200 million loss or 200 million profit, meaningless. They're not in it because it's a financial investment. You know, the free marketeers are dependent on cartelization and homogeneity within the upper echelons of football. In other words, Man City and PSG's owners are doing it for different reasons. Yes, they want the glory, but there is a, a wider political calculation 
which is where they're getting their profit. They want the profit to be in terms of soft power, which is not something that you would put on a balance sheet as such. And they have the liquidity and the money to be able to sustain huge, unending losses if they feel that the benefits, in terms of soft power, outweigh the financial costs. Which is not which is not the type of calculations that a Roman Abramovich or John Henry would be able to make. <laughs> because there was a lack of you know, homogeneity, because there was different ownership groups doing things for different reasons, and with you the lure of prestige football, <laughs> you know, led by the you know, growing revenues from the Champions League, there was a massive rise in money coming into football and investment from you know a new brand of football ownership and that led to a massive rise in debt across the board and these new owners were in parts naive reckless and incompetent these people would they were chasing the dream of glory and champions league revenues they were willing to spend to make money the point was that you'd have a foreign owner taking over a mid-table french team thinking all we need, if we spend the hundred million to own the club and fifty million on transfers, we can get into the Champions League, and that's two hundred million pounds in revenue. But obviously, there's, you know, only X amount of European places. So what would happen is these teams were missing out on Europe, and so suddenly that hundred million that they've spent is now absolutely massively higher than the turnover. And the problem is if one club spends huge amounts, of mid-table club spends huge amount of money, then everybody else has to up their game. You know, as an industry, football is not cost-controlled. It's highly variable, it's results-dependent, and it's not overtly profitable in comparison to other industry sectors. In other words, your turnover to wage ratio you know, is at times 50, 60, 75% which will naturally cut into your profits. The only way really to get better at football is to spend more money on wages. And the more money you spend, the more that cuts into your profitability, which is not the case in terms of investment, in terms of owning other companies and other sectors where you have an element of cost control in terms of wages, in terms of the market, which allows for far more success, whereby football you really only have maybe 10 or 15 clubs at any given point across the entire of Europe that can really be majorly successful at any given point. What has made football in Europe far more profitable has been financial fair play legislation. Effectively, it's forced clubs to live within their means and prioritise more sustainable ways of achieving long-term success. You know, the best examples would be the flowering of Le Championnat in France, with teams like Lyon and Rennes and Lille all having success in terms of focusing on you know, buying players from you know, the lower leagues, but you know, getting players in from Africa and other different parts of the footballing world developing and selling them on at a profit while simultaneously pushing yourself up the league because effectively the french league in terms of its television contract in terms of its status it can't really compete with you know the premiership in england it can't compete with la liga in spain and it can't really compete with 
you know, the Bundesliga in Germany or Serie A in Italy. Its method for success needs to be focused far more on being closer to a developmental league. Because the level of France is high enough that you can develop players and the scouting and youth development and still be competitive, you know, with, take PSG, slightly different because of the huge amount of money they have, but your Lyons can be successful in getting to the last stage of the Champions League, and, you know, is a a team with the size and the potential to win something like the Europa League, for instance. You know, if you take Atalanta in Italy, you know, with the and the inspiring rise of Ajax in almost reaching the Champions League final last season, it shows that if your business model, you know, it's underlined the efficacy of the legislation. It has allowed unheralded clubs to reach the latter stages of the Champions League. But more importantly, the limits on spending have mitigated the worst results of the Wild West spending era. Incompetent owners can no longer leverage clubs to unsustainable spending plans. And thus stabilising the industry from being a graveyard of broken clubs which is what you had with the collapse of ITV Digital in the Football League in the early 2000s in truth there are always going to be far more cowboy owners than responsible sheriffs in the world of football ownership I can understand why Aston Villa fans are frustrated. For them, they feel that they have an owner who is good, who is intelligent, who has large amounts of money at their disposal, and they want to spend it on making Villa great. But at the moment, they are constrained by the fair play legislation from being able to spend that. They have to spend it slower over a longer period of time, and they need more sustainable growth to be able to then spend more money. But constraining the few decent sheriffs from short-term overspending is really, for me, a necessary trade-off to curbing the worst excesses of the cowboys, which by its very nature affects the have-nots far more than the haves. Villa fans will take this. The previous owner ran Villa near enough into the ground by wasteful spending, breaking fair play legislation and championship. So really, the rise of the Cowboys and the advent of you know, of states owning football clubs to really shows the fallacy of the free marketers' ideology. This then begs the question, what is the alternative to the free marketers' ideology? The fair play legislation was a reactive solution as opposed to a fully-fledged political ideology. The legislation has broadly worked in making the industry more sustainable, less debt-ridden, but it cannot establish competitive balance or make the European Cup runs, Champions League runs of Monaco and Ajax more regular occurrences. Then effectively what they are, which is shooting stars. They briefly illuminate you know, the skies, before being systematically looted by the elite. In other words, I actually have got through to the semi-finals, you know, were seconds away from getting through, and they've lost, you know, their best playmaker, they've lost their best attacking player, they've lost their best centre-half, 
And although they have a huge amount of money for it, it's still really going to be another five or ten years before they can you know, build up the infrastructure to be more competitive. And it effectively becomes a once a ge- it becomes once a generation rather than once every four or five years, which is just, for me, personally heartbreaking. I grew up with an Ajax team winning the European Cup in 1995 with a brilliant young team that was able to stay together for two or three years long enough that they were able to win the big tournament before then being broken apart and then moving on to, you know, a lot of those players moved on. The Dutch league isn't huge. It isn't going to, you know, in the modern world, sustain a three-time European Cup winner. I understand that in a way that the 70s it could do. But now you're getting to a point, and, you know, shown by Monaco with their focus on, you know, youth development, you don't get far enough to win it. You just get a cup run, and by the end of that cup run, everybody of any value has been picked off. Football is a tribalised global sport. Appeals as a supposed greater good of football has no resonance to Man City fans lustily booing the UEFA anthem, nor to fans of the Habs desperately trying to remain there and the have-nots dreaming on a sovereign nation to buy them into the big time. You know, the main failure of fair play legislation was its inaction could only bolt the stable door after the PSG and Man City horses had you know, flown the nest, had run away, had you know, were out. And they had established themselves in the global elite. In other words, no matter how much you punish Man City now, you cannot take away all of the advantages that their overspending has led. That means that they've now won league titles. It means they are, you know, in terms of turnover, one of the top five teams on the planet. Yep, 25 million is going to yeah, affect them in the short term, but if you still have that revenue, if you still have that stadium, the manager, the players, it's on, it can't take Man City back and put them in mid-table in the Premier League, which is really where they were before Sheikh Mansour took over. This ban is a crushing short-term blow to Man City, but it's not. It's unlikely to check their continued goal of winning the Champions League. That is what the owners want. They want to see Man City with the European Cup to a worldwide audience. They want to sell the style that Man City have played to win the tournament. Now, even a, a casual glance at the City Football Group, in terms of the teams that they are building in Japan, in America, in Australia, all across the world in Latin America. It shows the extent of the roots being laid down across the globe to build the concept of Citigroup, to market it across the world. If you're going to compare it to Jack Walker, he built a couple of stands at Blackburn. Did up the training ground a little bit. As far as training grounds were nice in the mid-90s. And he put the money into the first team and won. In other words, once Jack Walker left, once he died, once the Walker Trust took over the club, they immediately back came back down to a Division One team or a lower mid-table Premier League side. There was nothing in it that was trying to make Blackburn great forever. It was really a short-term thing. It was, we want the glory, 
and they got what they paid for. Whereby this is not the case with Man City. They are not just going to sit there and say, win the European Cup, job done, and then move on. This is far more longer term. European football has become the dominant economic powerhouse and leader in both in terms of the quality of football on display and ideas. It's long surpassed the international game. The international game with the World Cup used to be the pinnacle. It's now isn't. The Champions League is a far higher quality in terms of the amount of teams, in terms of the quality of football. The question that all football fans must ask is whether the wealth and decadence of the European elite is a good or bad thing for the sport. Undoubtedly, we are in the era of the super teams. Never before has such skill, talent been brought together in the case of Liverpool, Man City, Barcelona, Real, Bayern, PSG and Juventus. There's never been such a concerted period of dominance for these aforementioned teams and they've never had such a set of managers in terms of Klopp, Guardiola, even to a lesser extent Zidane, who've dominated the tactical discourse and revolutionised how the game is played. So you have a combination of fantastic teams in all of the major European leagues and great managers. Couple that with the facilities and the technology afforded to these super teams, it's unimaginable even 15 or 20 years ago, the sort of facilities, the training grounds, the technology that is being used. Pep Guardiola, probably more than anybody else, signifies this era and brought it into being. Therefore, it is high time to place him on trial for crimes against football. That his career management has fundamentally corrupted and damaged the sport. This is the prosecution's argument. Pep Guardiola has, over his managerial career, accumulated the most power of any football manager ever. No manager has had the ability to choose not only the jobs that he has taken, but affects the terms of his employment. Jose Mourinho has been sacked and has lost power struggles at the clubs that he's been at. He lost a power struggle with Roman Abramovich the first time at Chelsea. He lost a you know, player power fight with the squad the second time he was at Chelsea. You know, he lost a battle with the Madrid ownership, with the Madrid players, and was sacked, or had to leave. You know, he was turned down for the Barcelona job to Pep Guardiola. You know, Jurgen Klopp has never been seriously considered for the Bayern Munich job, the premier job of domestic German football. He's never been seriously linked with the Madrid or Barcelona managerial roles. This power stems from the strength of the Guardiola brand and the prestige it infers not just on the club he joins but the, the league as a whole. Considering his first two post-Barcelona roles have been in the German Bundesliga, which is seen as unfashionable due to its lack of star players in both management and players. It's an, you know, where what Jose said was that, you know, even the bus driver could win the German league with Bayern Munich. 
you know, due to their dominance, their ability to buy the best players from the you know, Borussia Dortmund, from Schalke. In other words, they seemingly have an element of first pick on anyone that is particularly good in Germany, specifically the German players, which then gives them an inbuilt advantage. And if you take the Premier League, which, you know, in comparison with the German League, yes, it has an array of star players and managers, you know, Mourinho, Klopp's. But has always been viewed as tactically inferior due to the, the pace of play, how fast English football is and how physical it is. And the idea that the, you know, the stereotypical English intransigence, its young players are you know, put in a huge amount of effort and are chock full of grit, but they are not tactically sophisticated, which is why the English national team always falls apart, you know, at the highest level of international football in the Euros and in the World Cup. <laughs> it, it's important to note that throughout his career, Pep has only ever taken jobs at clubs with world-class infrastructure in terms of the stadiums, the training ground. You know, there's always an established you know, first team, you know, chock full of internationals, and it's undercut with an exceptional youth teams. You know, all three clubs have been successful domestically and in Europe. You know, each have, you know, substantial transfer budgets and wage bills. You know, effectively, it amounts to a clear set of criteria that Guardiola requires in order to implement his style of play and achieve the success to which he is accustomed. You know, therefore, really, there's only a handful of European clubs that have the resources and infrastructure to acquire his services. Which really begs the political question, what is the prime driver of Guardiola's success as a manager? Is it down to is his success down to his intrinsic, you know, tactical genius, rendering the com you know the competition meek, which is generally the viewpoint I think most you know media football media people have on most fans that he's just so good, no one can compete. It just or is it really down to the systemic inequality? that all but ensures that have-nots cannot meaning com meaningly compete. So in other words, at what point can, let's say, mid-table Everton compete with Man City? In terms of, you know, they have, you know, Man City have outspent them by, let's say, two, three hundred million pounds. Have, you know, two hundred million pounds more in terms of wage bill in terms of the stadium in terms of the pl the quality of players they are able to acquire i mean if we take the fa cup final watford were a mid-table outfit and had they not got through to the fa cup final almost certainly they would have finished in the top half of the table so they dropped off maybe the last two or three weeks because they had the you know, fa cup final to look forward to it was a huge thing for watford and yet, come final day, they got annihilated by Man City. It was, you know, 6-0. It could have been 7, it could have been 8. 
And the thing is, it wasn't even Man City's best team. They had two or three of their better players on the bench. They were using this effectively as a means to keep squad harmony. To use some of the lesser members to give them the sense that they were a part of it. They started on the day and got their medal and their goal. And that the more important players you know, effectively were rested. Even though they had no more games to play. They treated that game as a way of maintaining squad harmony. Rather than treating it as this is an FA Cup final. We have to put our best team on the day to win. You know, It was 2-0 at half time. And Watford gave it their absolute all. I have no criticism of Watford on the day. But they just weren't able to compete. Whereby the gap, if you're talking, had spoken about FA Cups you know, historically, even 10, 15 years earlier, you wouldn't have had a situation where on the day, the team finishing top and the team finishing mid-table would have such a huge gap. You know, for me... You know that the beautiful football that Guardiola plays really amounts to little more than you know, you know, aesthetic window dressing. You know, this argument really is posits that you're talking 70, 80, 85 percent of the league in effect become the Washington Generals, the Guardiola's Harlem Globetrotters. You know, effectively, what I was saying in terms of the FA Cup final. Really, we're using the historic competitive balance that used to be within you know, European football, within domestic English football, as a credibility tool. So, in other words, when you watch the Harlem Globetrotters play the Washington Generals, the expectation is the Washington Generals will give the Harlem Globetrotters a game, but the Harlem Globetrotters will always win. I think historically there's only been five you know, official you know, Globetrotter Generals match where the Generals actually won. You know, the point is we know it's an exhibition and it doesn't have the intensity or the meaningfulness that a real league match goes. In other words, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters are marketed as the world's best basketball team. But we know that if you stuck them in the NBA, they wouldn't be the best team. You know, I think the classic example was when uh, Southampton played away at Man City and... Yeah, really they had to you know, they tried to defend it out, they tried to give it a go, but meaningfully they knew that they if they opened up and tried to play them at the same level, they would be annihilated. And yet at the end of the game, Pep Guardiola goes up to Nathan Redman, who's a fairly promising winger for Southampton, and really chastised him. For not going forward and for not attacking and not showing, you know, what Pep's considered his true ability, but it's just like, well, how dare you chastise them for their defensiveness? Because you have overwhelming firepower advantage in terms of the youth system, in terms of the bench you have, in terms of the you know, the size of the stadium, in terms of the wage bill, in terms of the transfer budget, in terms of the, you know. The, the prestige you give them by being manager in comparison in their ability to then get the world's best players. No wonder Southampton couldn't attack you. If they did, you would annihilate them. That's why you have to defend, because you're trying you know, not to lose confidence, and you're trying on the off chance you might get a result. 
you might be one of those five, you know, Washington general teams that managed to, you know, get a victory. Mm. In mitigation, there is an element of unintended consequences to the rise of Pep and the onset of stratification within European football. You know, the original success of Guardiola at Barcelona was really the triumph of the La Misa philosophy that was laid down by Johan Cruyff. The idea that you'd have a set way of playing football and that from the youth system up to the first team, you would have you would understand what it meant to be a Barcelona player and how to play. And that that was, you know, aesthetically pleasing, it was, you know, very technical, it was very skillful. And with someone like Lionel Messi, with the talent that they had that went through the system all around the same age group, <laughs> it was then taken to the next level by Pep, who was someone who had grown up as a footballer and as a thinker, with Johan Cruyff as his manager, and as a legend of Barcelona. There is so much synergy. You could write textbooks for how perfect it was. It was just the right circumstances at the right times. And nobody can doubt the purity. I mean, the point is is that no one you know, expected when they signed Lionel Messi, who was an undersized you know, Argentine, Argentine kid who needed growth hormone. No one thought that this was going to be the greatest football player in the world. This kid was very talented, but hundreds, thousands of kids with that kind of level of promise rock up into, you know, youth systems across the world. You know, what percentage actually make it just as pros, let alone top level pros, not alone, let alone, you know, inner circle geniuses. You know, I, I'm not doubting the purity of his on-field style. It is visually arresting. And it offers a gateway to talent to express itself to its highest level. You know, it has pushed opposition players, managers and governing officials to improve themselves, facilities and tactics. However, with each step away from the new camp, there's been less focus on youth development. You know, more reliance on plug-and-play, high-profile foreign signings. You know, while all three clubs he's managed to have had substantial youth systems, the requirement for one now appears more to be a sign of wealth than as a tool that Guardiola intent meaningfully intends to use. You know, the loss of Jadon Sancho, who'd come through the Man City youth system, who left because... In reality, he wasn't expecting to get meaningful playing time. He went to, you know, Borussia Dortmund and is now, you know, worth well over £100 million, maybe £150 million in terms of transfer value. He has been a fantastic player for Dortmund and for Man City. And he could have been for Man City. He's done well for England. He's just the archetypal player that you want your high-end youth system to get. A kid that was, you know, started his career at a smaller club that you basically got them before they'd, you know, 15, 16, signed them, trained them up, taught them, you know, your ethos. You then put them into the first team and they potentially become the next Messi. 
you know, and all the money that you save instead of having to spend one hundred and fifty million pounds on the next superstar, you have him just there on your doorstep, and the meaningfulness that you can sell it in terms of the marketing. One of our own. The fans always love a talented young player coming through the system, especially if they are local or play for the country. So in other words, you can say we're helping the club and we're helping the country. You know, and you've got, and then got the continued stalling of Phil Foden's career. You know, the assumption is is that if he was at anywhere up to you know, 15, 16 other clubs in the Premier League, he would be a, a guaranteed starter. He'd be playing for England. And yet here at Man City, he's getting minutes here or there, none of which that's potentially important. And his development at some level has got to be stalling. Now, the overall, you know, combine this with the overall failure of the Man City project to develop, you know, youth talent as a whole. And it shows the worst elements of the City project. That it's window dressing. It's Yes, we've spent a huge amount of money on the youth development and we've helped regenerate parts of East Manchester, which, you know was particularly downtrodden before we rocked up. But you then haven't you know, had a manager or a style that has really had any, any benefit to using that youth talent. In other words, Guardiola, instead of using, you know, widely speaking, using that talent in the FA Cup and the League Cup last year, no, he used the predominantly the first team because he wanted the treble. You know, the question of youth development exhibits troubling examples of how the purity of La Misa and the class of 92 with Manchester United and Alex Ferguson and Eric Harrison, that youth development, you know, can be corrupted into a cynical money-making enterprising. You know, stockpiling young players to prevent them from, you know, signing for your rivals than actually a real desire to play them. So you're just stockpiling them to beggar the, you know, beggar your neighbour. You know, using, you know, loans and the sort of sticker brand value having been a graduate of a world class academy. So to then say, oh, you're signing a Chelsea player, you're signing a city graduate who's been on loan to, you know, foreign player, you know, and using that really to pump up their value and then dump it on the market. Mm. You know, that's been perfected by Chelsea. You know, having 40, 50 players out on loan, you know, all different places, you know, having players who've been at Chelsea for five, six, seven years who have never actually been anywhere near to playing for Chelsea. You know, it's and it was only upon a substantial finding of institutional wrongdoing by Chelsea that led to a transfer ban. Did Chelsea's first team and fans you know, finally profit from actually seeing youth team graduates performing at Stamford Bridge? You know, it's another unintended consequence of the hyper-competitive battles that, are, that litter the top of European football. It's been a reversion to short-termism among the European elite. You know, it's notable throughout Guardiola's career that he doesn't stay long at any one club, thereby immediately placing the emphasis on short-term success, 
which inevitably leads to the sidelining of young players to the detriment of the long term. This questions the extent to which Guardiola bears partial or even large responsibility for the Man City cheating scandal. Of course, it's ludicrous in assertion in the to an extent that he clearly did not sign the papers that were lies to UEFA or institute the sponsorship workarounds that were enacted by the ownership and by the executives they had hired. However, it's a more broader question as to what ends was the cheating in aid of. You know, Man City could have developed at a slower level pace, you know, acting within the rules, and still maintained, you know, competitiveness domestically. You know, with the hiring of Ferren Soriano and Taziki Brigastain, it was obvious for several years that Man City were, walking, were working towards hiring Pep Guardiola. We've already noted that you know, there's a clear cri- set of criteria that Guardiola requires in order to take the job. You know, Man City had less European pedigree than Barcelona and Bayern. You know, they'd only made the semis of the Champions League. That's the first time they'd really had a breakthrough at Champions League level. You know, has City not artificially inflated the sponsorship and were less successful? It is hard to imagine Guardiola taking the job in the first place. You know, as we've seen by the continued success of Bayern and Barcelona after Guardiola has left, after his departure, and the trophies that Man City have won under, you know, Roberto Mancini and Manuel Pellegrini, his the previous incumbents of the Man City manager's job, you know, the institutional infrastructural advantages are not Guardiola specific. There are other managers that if you've given them the Barcelona job, the Bayern job and the Man City job, were able to win titles. You know, the the Pellegrini Man City were a wonderful attacking outfit. Mm. So effectively, Man City was hiring the brand aesthetics of Guardiola Ball, really for sports-washing purposes. In many ways, the greatest success of the latter iterations of Guardiola's career has been its ability to play off the deepest neuroses and insecurities of the German and then English footballing media and public. I mean, the European campaigns at Bayern and Man City have been abject failures. They lost to a Tottenham team that had multiple injuries that was really on one leg by the time they'd reached their you know, quarterfinals. You know, they got battered by Liverpool and they're now, you know, Liverpool then got on and won the you know the Champions League. You know, they got battered by Barca, they got battered by Real, they lost fairly comfortably to Atletico Madrid. Now if you are the owners of Bayern Munich and you hire Pep Guardiola, who's in t- most of his career have been spent as you know, a player playing for Barcelona against their huge rivals Real Madrid and you know, Atletico Madrid and managed Barcelona for several years, the advantages would be that you would know exactly how to play against Spanish opposition. Yet the three years he was out, Bayern 
each time they lost in the Champions League to Spanish outfits. You know, the two teams that, you know, he has, you know, where Man City have lost, they've been battered by Liverpool and Spurs, who they play on a yearly, weekly basis. And yet, the consensus within the media argues that Guardiola has revolutionized the domestic game in both countries. You know, essentially, the sheen of the on-field product and its brilliance reflects onto the writer's work. I go, if you take a 75-point champions from the 90s, so they've only got 75 points and won the Premier League title. That's, you know, a couple of Man United teams did that. And then, you know, it pales in significance to a treble-winning 100-point Manchester City. And that gives rise to the purplest of pros. In other words, you're dealing with an unheralded brilliance, a dominance that has never been seen before in the English game. That, you know, sports writers want to cover the most important. They want to cover the best teams and everything else in that nature. And in some ways it becomes, more importantly, it becomes an easy cop-out. When it you know, compared to the much more onerous task of outlining the brutally repressive nature of you know, Abu Dhabi of, and the inevitable link between sports washing and a loss of competitive balance. In other words, it's much easier to write about how genius David Silva is, how good Bernardo Silva is, you know, the deadliness of Sergio Aguero, you know, the inspirational captaincy of Vincent Company, than it is to constantly remind yourself that yes, they've spent a huge amount of money, yes, it's sports washing, you know, a brutally repressive regime. And yes, it's damaging competitive balance because now you are getting teams winning week in, week out, winning 15 times in a row, which shouldn't really be possible. That shouldn't be normal. You shouldn't be able to just go month after month and never lose. And it's also set against the backdrop of an audience that was looking to sports as an avenue out of the exhausting national nightmare of the Brexit wars at the time. You know, they were not going to be receptive, you know, to the sports, you know, department, you know, doing geopolitical posturing. They just didn't want to hear it. And so I can understand why it's not more of an issue, but it still is. You can't just ignore it and just pretend it's not happening. In conclusion, the prosecution's case rests on on the simple premise that Pep Guardiola's managerial career is dependent on the corruptions of the basic principles of the professional football game in Europe. The Guardiola era has been built on Barcelona requiring shirt sponsorship. You know, Traditionally, Barcelona never had shirt sponsorship. You know, the idea was is that you kept the shirt clean, and it was you know, meant to it was meant to mean something. That yes, Real Madrid would have shirt sponsorship, but Barcelona wouldn't because it had you know its foundational ethos. You know, the one of the founders of Barcelona always wanted them to play with you know the blue 
and you know dark maroon stripes and that was always going to be the case that was basically in the constitution that was how Barcelona were going to have their home kit forever and yet a few years ago they then went to checks and it really the only reason that you did that and basically bastardized your own history was that you'd had so many different shirts with the same kind you know the same pattern because you you know you were limited that they thought well we'll just change it to checks because that will sell more shirts you know, which is you know just you can do it but at the same point it is you know damaging to your history you know, whereby a few years ago, maybe you know, generation previously, you could say there was a fundamental difference between the way how Barcelona went about things and Real Madrid. I don't see any difference. They are both as big and as bad as each other in terms of you know, commercialism, in terms of they just, it's a death struggle. One, you know, zero-sum game. If Barcelona win, Real Madrid lose. If Real win, Barca lose. You know, and that dominance... You know, is really due to, you know, in part to a fundamentally unfair breakdown of the, you know, Spanish television revenue. And that has safely ensconced Real Madrid and Barcelona in this duopoly. You know, it has Bayern Munich under his management ignoring the protests of human rights activists and NGOs back home to spend their winter break training in a state-of-the-art complex in Qatar. You know, Guardiola finished his playing career in Qatar, and has extolled the virtues of, you know, the World Cup being hosted there. Despite the strong suspicion of corruption over the voting process, which allowed Qatar to win, and to, you know, host the World Cup. And the thousands of deaths of migrant labourers, you know, building these stadiums and infrastructure required for the World Cup. You know, the atrocious, you know, living conditions and working conditions. You know, in the sense that they had no workers' rights, the pay was terrible, you know, their passports were confiscated. You know, it was just atrocious. We've all know it, we all know it's happened, and there's only been very limited amounts of, of piecemeal reforms, but that still doesn't change the fact that this that World Cup is going to be built on the deaths and the bones of thousands of migrant workers. You know, it's notable that Bayern stopped their Qatari breaks just after Pep left for Man City. You know, you can't even, it cannot even be said that Pep is apolitical with the controversy over his wearing a ribbon in support of the jailed Catalan nationalist politicians in Spain while on the touchlines at Man City. So in other words, he's not just somebody doing a job, not political in any way, it's political when it features, you know, imprisoned politicians due to, um, you know, independence referendum in, you know, Catalonia that the Spanish government considered illegal, yet what happens in Qatar and what happens in Abu Dhabi is not his problem, apparently. <laughs> you know, at Man City, it's a football club that is owned by a nation-state whose electorate is comprised of 2% of the population and is engaged in brutally repressive crackdowns on protesters. You know, an ownership group that is engaged in systematic cheating and engaged in bullying tactics to intimidate the leadership of the government body. You know, the city group's, you know, expansion across the globe is a clear attempt at sports washing, you know, to perpetuate a positive global image. 
You know, at no point has Guardiola chosen to resign in principle at the cheating. That in effect, you know, was required to persuade him to take the job. Nor has he made any attempt to leverage his personal stature in the world's most popular sport to put pressure on his owners to reform politically. Never before has one sporting manager had such power and influence to take any job and to shape European football by that. You know, I've previously referred to Guardiola as the gardener of Versailles. You know, simply producing, you know, wondrous visual image while ignoring the rising tumult at the gates. However, this metaphor ignores the soft power that the Guardiola brand possesses. You know, the beautiful football is built on the decadence of the elites. You know, Guardiola is not just a servant of the elites, he is a member of said elites. He has always chosen elite football clubs to go to. He has never decided to take the challenge of taking a mid-table team and winning the league. You know, he's never sat there and said, OK, I will go to Man City, but I will use youth team players primarily. I will not spend huge amounts of money. I can win on my own genius alone. You know, the decadence, the money that has been put into Man City is Gatsby-esque. You're getting a situation where... European top-level football is just becoming a closed shop. It is simply a wonderful party at a huge mansion with the rest of the world just having effectively shut out. Just you know, looking through the window and peeking in at this you know, just fabulous wealth. You know, the resource Guardiola requires to enact his brand is as much dependent on a hopelessly outmatched 80% of the league as well as this palatial infrastructure that the European elite now has. You know, great art cannot be viewed in a contextless vacuum. You know, the Guardiola brand is built on a system that is inherently unfair and is anti-competitive. You know, as evinced by the rise to dominance of PSG, Juventus, Barca, Real, Bayern, you know, the 100-point barrier used to be an unreachable ceiling. It was something that was theoretically possible, that in a 38-game season that you would be able to win, let's say, 32 matches out of 38, and then still draw four games or you know, and lose two. It just wasn't something that seemed possible. But now it's a baseline. You know, to find Pep Guardiola guilty of crimes against football would be an acknowledgement that no individual has done more to build and maintain this system. Now, he's used his soft power in service to sports washing. He's weaponised his football as a cover to systemic cheating. You know, the dismantling of this system and restoration of competitive balance you know, may result in the loss of Guardiola ball. Maybe the, the football that is played at the top end of European football wouldn't be as wonderful, wouldn't be quite as thrilling. But re-establishing a fair playing field for all is more important. It's what made us all fall in love with football in the first place. Thank you for listening.